Our scripture reading this morning is Mark 14, 53 to 65. This is the reading of God's word. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together, and Peter had followed him at a glance, at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none, for many bore false witnesses against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy the temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up and in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garment and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him and des- him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy! And the guards received him with blows. May God bless the reading of his word. Thank you, Elder Stan. On August 24th, 1955, an African-American from Chicago named Emmett Till visited family in Mississippi. Standing outside a store, he bragged to his cousins that he had a white girlfriend back at home. His cousins snickered, refused to believe him, and dared him. Well, if that's the case, then why don't you ask out the white woman standing behind the counter? And so Emmett went into the store, bought some candy, and on his way out, he said, bye, baby, and all of his cousins started laughing. A few days later, that woman's husband and brother-in-law showed up at Emmett's uncle's home. They found Emmett, forced him into their car. They forced him to carry a 75-pound cotton gin fan all the way to the bank of the Tallahatchie River. There, they removed his clothes and beat him mercilessly. They gouged out his eye and shot him in the head and they strapped his lifeless body to that fan with barbed wire and threw him into the river. His corpse was so marred and disfigured that the only way they could identify him was with the ring that was on one of his fingers. Emmett was only 14 years old. Less than a month later, The woman's husband and brother-in-law were tried before an all-white jury. 
After less than an hour of deliberating, they came back with the verdict, not guilty. I remember learning and reading about Emmett Till in college. I remember how angry I felt at the injustice of it all. And I believe this was one of those moments in history that actually motivated me to switch to become a history major. I wanted to better understand how something like this could happen in our country. Of course, travesties of injustice like this are nothing new. It can be traced all the way back to the fall of man, all the way to the murder of Abel. Yet no act of injustice has ever been more appalling, more unjust than when Jesus, the only righteous person to ever walk this earth, than for him to stand condemned before the Jewish council. And so this morning, it's my hope to help you understand just how appalling his trial was, and more importantly, to help you see how his story plays a part in your own and why it's relevant for us. So let's begin. First, when it comes to Jesus' trial, it's obvious that the Jewish leaders make a mockery of justice. His trial is so corrupt through and through, there's no way it should have ever been heard, let alone reach a guilty verdict. Almost every aspect of the trial is corrupted. For example, you know there is something fishy when you consider when the trial takes place. It takes place past midnight, in the middle of the night, not during normal business hours. It happens in the wee hours of the night when most people are asleep. Not only that, but you know something's fishy when you consider where this trial takes place. Scholars and historians note that court cases back then in Jesus' day always occurred in the market halls in the middle of town. That's where felony trials, capital cases, were conducted. And yet here, Jesus' trial takes place at the personal home of the high priest. Why? I'll tell you why. It's because the market hall was closed. They're not open in the evenings. But instead of waiting for the next day when the market halls are open, the, the leaders are so rushed to get this trial conducted in the middle of the night that they conducted in the personal residence of the high priest. Which then causes us to ask, What's the rush? Why are they in such a hurry? Well, it's obvious, isn't it? 
They wanted to draw as minimal attention as possible to Jesus' trial. They knew how popular Jesus was, and so they didn't want to risk a a, a riot. And so the, the, the fewer the eyeballs are looking, the better. Not only that, but I also believe they knew that their conducting of the case was full of corruption. They knew that the evidence they were going to bring forward was was fraudulent. And so again, they had something to hide. They didn't want people to see what they were doing in the dark. And so they make haste to get Jesus tried ASAP. In addition to when and where this trial takes place, we all know that at the heart of every case is the evidence That's what makes or breaks a trial. And so let's consider the evidence that is brought forth against Jesus. The evidence is so suspect, so corrupt, that it doesn't even satisfy the minimal standards of the Jewish court. According to Deuteronomy 17, verse 6, when it came to capital crimes, God demanded that uh, someone must be convicted by two or three witnesses. That a single person's testimony alone was not sufficient to condemn someone of death. You needed another witness to corroborate that testimony. And yet... We are told in verse 56 that none of the witnesses' testimonies aligned. They kept on contradicting each other. Why? It's because these witnesses were making up their stories. They were most likely paid to give false testimony, and because it was made up, no other testimony would align with theirs. And Mark gives us an example of such a testimony. In verse 58, he records, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. I want you to know that Rome took uh, abuse and, and destruction of religious property seriously. And so here a witness comes forth and says, I heard Jesus say, I will destroy the temple and in three days rebuild it. Now what this witness is talking about is something Jesus said in John chapter 2, verse 19, which is in front of you. Now if you compare what the witness said Jesus said with what Jesus really said in John chapter 2, what do you notice? you'll notice that Jesus said, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it. He never says, I will destroy this temple. He never says, he's going to be the one to destroy it. All he simply says is, if this temple is destroyed, then I will rebuild it. Thankfully for Jesus, No other witness could corroborate this statement. So even that testimony is found invalid. At this point of the trial, Jesus' case should have been thrown out. There is insufficient 
evidence because all the witness cannot, witnesses cannot co- corroborate with one another. Now, if you compare the way Jesus' trial is conducted with how our American judicial system operates, it makes the injustice all the more outrageous. I talked, to with one, I talked with one of our members who happens to be a DA, and I, I simply asked him, can you explain to me the process of what happens between arrest and verdict? And he goes on to explain that, well, in America, you have a right to an attorney. Clearly, Jesus doesn't have any representation here. But not only that, but the defense has the right to preview all evidence that is brought before the court. And so the defense has time necessary to review all the evidence and prepare a counter-argument, an explanation. Not only that, but the prosecution has the legal responsibility to present any and all evidence to the defense, even evidence that weakens their own case, evidence that supports the defendant. The prosecution is legally responsible to share that with the defense. Not only that, but before the defense goes to trial, a pretrial must occur where a judge looks at the evidence and determines whether or not there's probable cause. As you can see, from beginning to end, you have this extensive process encoded in our law. Why? To protect the innocent from being declared guilty. Now, does this always work? Of course not. But that's how the law is designed. Jesus is arrested in the evening, rushed to trial a few hours later, has all kinds of false witnesses coming forth, bringing sham testimonies, and he is condemned in less than 12 hours. Yet what makes his trial all the more outrageous is when you consider who it is they condemn and who it is doing the condemning. I'm reminded of the TV show Undercover Boss. I don't know if you guys have seen it. For the uninformed, it's a reality show where the CEO goes undercover and dresses up in disguise and pretends to be a new employee. And the purpose of this adventure is for the CEO to know what it's really like to work in one of his companies. And so as you might expect, the CEO is often shocked at what he or she discovers. Inevitably, you have that abusive manager hurling insults and screaming at his employees, unknowingly abusing, screaming profanities at the CEO. And as viewers, we're all feeling really uncomfortable or really satisfied. This guy is going to get what is coming to him. The abusive behavior all on its own is appalling enough, but to know that he's hurling these insults at the CEO makes his actions all the more grave. 
That's what we have here. In verse 60, due to the conflicting testimonies of the witnesses, the high priest decides to resort to plan B. Since I can't find testimony to condemn Jesus, maybe I can get Jesus to incriminate himself. And so he puts Jesus on the stand. And he asks in verse 61, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? Now, up until now, Jesus has been silent. He hasn't uttered a word, probably because he doesn't want to dignify the lies that have been presented up until then. But for the first time, Jesus hears the truth. The truth comes out of the high priest's mouth. Are you the Christ, the Son of God? To everyone's surprise, Jesus finally speaks and he answers, I am. I am the promised Messiah. But then he goes on to clarify what he means because he knows that what they have in mind regarding the Messiah is not what he has in mind. He knows that for them, they picture a geopolitical Messiah. They picture a ruler who will overthrow the Roman Empire and restore Israel back to its Solomonic glory. And Jesus says, no, that's not the Messiah I confess to be. What I have in mind is actually much greater. He goes on to say in verse 62, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Jesus blows up their small-minded picture. By claiming to be the Son of Man, Jesus is identifying himself with the prophecy of Daniel chapter 7, which envisions a man coming from the clouds of heaven to rule not only over Israel, but over all the nations of the earth, every country, every people group, to reign as king forever and to sit and stand as judge. You can say that this is the part where the CEO reveals his identity. And when the CEO says, ah, the person you've been abusing is actually your boss. What normally happens on the TV show? You find the manager groveling, saying, sorry, please, please, I didn't know this was you. Here, Jesus reveals his true identity. I am the son of man of Daniel. I am ruler over the cosmos. I will judge the living and the dead. And what you hope to see is the Jewish council on their knees, repenting for what they've done. But instead, we see the opposite. They step on the pedal of injustice, and they pronounce Guilty, you have blasphemed against our God, and then they proceed to torment Jesus. They spit on his face, and they play a cruel game of blind man's bluff. They cover his eyes, and they repeatedly strike him and say, can you guess who just 
hit you. I can imagine the angels on high stunned at what they were seeing. The judge of the universe is judged. The righteous and holy one found guilty. And the irony of it all is that by charging and condemning Jesus with blasphemy, the Jewish council are guilty of the very charge they bring against Jesus. No, they are the ones blaspheming, for Jesus is the Lord of lords and the God of gods. When I take a step back and consider what's going on here, I can't help but see a reflection of myself. Let me ask you, why do they treat Jesus this way? Why do they refuse to believe that Jesus is the Messiah? I can think of two reasons. One, they refuse to believe because they did not want to give up power. The moment they recognize that Jesus is the Son of God is the moment they have to bow and kneel before him. But these leaders want to protect their power, their sovereignty, their authority. And so they're willing to protect themselves at all costs and won't entertain the idea that perhaps Jesus is telling the truth. Another reason why they refuse to believe Jesus is because he doesn't act the way they thought a Messiah should. Jesus doesn't do the things that they thought a Messiah would do. The council wanted a Messiah of glory. What they failed to realize is that they needed a Messiah of suffering. The council wanted a Messiah who bears a sword. What they didn't realize is they ultimately needed a Messiah who bears a cross. Because Jesus didn't fit their preconceptions and the mold of what a Messiah should do, they reject him, condemn him, and murder him. Now, I know many of us may not be openly accusing Jesus of blasphemy. We may not be spitting on him, hurling insults, let alone striking him with our fists. But how many of us protect our own authority? How many of us are unwilling to surrender our will to the Lord's? We like our sin. And so we're unwilling to let it go. But we know that the closer we get to Jesus, the more we're gonna have to surrender that sin, and so we intentionally keep him far away. How many of us struggle to embrace Jesus because of preconceived assumptions we have about God? How many today say, God would not send anyone to hell? 
No, 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 no. God has to accept everyone. In fact, God has to accept people from all religions. That's the only type of God I will believe in, a God who receives people from all faiths. And if you don't fit my mold of how God should act, I won't believe in you. Or how many of us reject God because he doesn't do what you want him to do? If there is a God, he would make my life comfortable and easy. All my plans and dreams will be fulfilled. And if you don't do that, if you don't make my life easy, then God, I am either going to openly reject you or be passive-aggressive and step away from you, give you the cold shoulder, not pray as much as I should, not read or engage you, because you know what? I'm mad at you. I think if we take a, a hard look at our own hearts, we find ourselves with the Jewish council. We find ourselves guilty of judging the great judge, questioning his wisdom. You see, this is the essence of sin. Sin is substituting yourself for God. Sin is substituting yourself for God and telling God, I know how this world must be run. I know how my life should play out. You need to do what I want you to do. And yet, as stunning as the actions of the council are in our passage, as outrageous as it is for us to see the divine judge being judged, the Holy One declared guilty of blasphemy, there's something even more mystifying about our passage. Jesus doesn't retaliate. Jesus, who is the Son of God, who is God in the flesh, he submits to the guilty verdict. He submits to the spitting, the taunting, to the blows. He doesn't resist. He takes it all. In fact, you can make the argument <coughs> excuse me, that if Jesus kept his mouth shut, if he didn't respond to the high priest's question, he would have been let go. There would have been no evidence used against him. But Jesus, he speaks up. He says, I am the Messiah, knowing knowing full well that by agreeing with this statement, he is functionally condemning himself before this court. And so this causes us to ask, why? 
Why does Jesus put up with the scandal of his trial? Mark gives us an answer through some creative storytelling. For those of you who know me, you know that I am an avid soccer fan. And for me, there is nothing better, more entertaining on TV than the World Cup, especially when it comes to the end of the group stage, because in the very last game of the group stage, what often happens is not only are you cheering for your team, but in order for your team to advance, not only do they have to win, but another team has to lose in another game. And so the World Cup sets it up where these two games are played simultaneously. And so you're watching one game, cheering for your team, and then you toggle to the other game, hoping that this other team loses. And so essentially, you're cheering for two games at the same time. That's what we have going on here. In our passage, Mark writes in such a way that we see that there are two events occurring at the same time. You might have noticed in last week's scripture reading, I patched together verses throughout chapter 14 that relate to Peter's denial. It's not all found in one succinct passage. It's scattered throughout. You may have noticed that in this scripture reading regarding Jesus' trial, inserted in the middle of it is what? A random verse that says that Peter is warming himself by the fire. What does that have to do with the trial? What Mark is trying to show us is that while Jesus is being tried upstairs in Caiaphas' home, Peter is denying Jesus downstairs in the courtyard. While they're interrogating Jesus upstairs, false allegations, at the same exact time, Peter is being interrogated on whether or not he knows Jesus. Why? Mark wants us to know that Jesus submits himself and embraces the guilty verdict because Jesus is doing it for Peter. Jesus is the one absorbing the impact of Peter's denials. Jesus, the innocent one, is trading places with Peter, knowing that the only way Peter can be forgiven, the only way Peter can be set free, is if he is tried and condemned. You see, as much as sin is man substituting himself for God, Salvation is God substituting himself for man. And that's what Jesus is doing 
substituting himself for Peter. And as much as he does that for Peter, he does that for all those who believe in him. I want you to picture your most shameful moment. I want you to think of a memory that you deeply regret. And I want you to consider that scene being played out at the same time Jesus is being tried and Jesus knowing what you will do, knowing what you have done, submitting himself to the injustice so that you, the guilty one, can be set free. So how does all this impact us? I've got three quick applications. First, I think our passage beckons us to worship. How can we not worship the one who gave himself up for us, who endured the travesty of injustice so that we, the true criminals, can be set free? Second, I believe our passage beckons us to repentance, to repent of the ways we clutch onto our sovereignty and say to God, no, I want to be in control. To repent of the ways we passive aggressively withdraw from God because he isn't doing what we want him to do. Perhaps God is calling us to trust him, to trust him even when we don't agree with him and to believe that what he is doing in our lives is actually better for us than what we want him to do. Because God is not so much out for our happiness as much as he is pursuing our holiness, knowing that in our holiness and walking with Jesus do we ever experience true happiness. Lastly, I believe our passage invites us to forgive. If we are the beneficiaries of a God who substituted himself for us, for our crimes, for our sins, then as radically forgiven people, we ought to be radically forgiving people. All of us daily interact with sinners wherever we go. Whether it's out on the roads, in the office, in the school, in church small group, or at home. Daily, we rub against the sins of others. And at that point, we can choose to retaliate or we can choose to forgive. We can choose to show the flesh, or we can choose to show Christ. And so I know there are so many more applications that we can draw, but those are three that I can think of. And so may the Lord speak to our hearts this morning as we take in the wonder of his trial.
not only the wonder of man's sin, but the greater wonder of God's grace. Let's pray. Lord, we are humbled by your love. We are humbled by the price you paid, the cross you carried, the sin and the indemnities you endured so that we, the guilty ones, might be forgiven. We thank you, O Lord, for enduring the shame, for enduring the injustice, so that we might become your children. Father, may this reality compel us to greater worship and greater affections for you. May this reality cause us to trust you and submit to you. May this reality cause us to forgive others as you have forgiven us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.